There's just no denying that Texas produced its fair share of stone-cold killers in the latter part of the 19th century. Men like John Wesley Harden, King Fisher, Clay Allison, the outlaw Sam Bass, and of course, the notorious Deacon Jim Miller. And then there's Bill Longley, considered by some to be one of the deadliest gunmen of all the West. A tall, brooding shootist credited with 32 kills, who was once described as the worst man in Texas. Join me today as we delve into the man who once said, quote, I still alone tread the living land destitute of friends, but damn the world and every son of a bitch that don't like me, for I am a wolf and it is my night to howl. Wild West pimp style. Oh, yeah. My name's Josh and get ready to howl with me on this long overdue episode of the Wild West Extravaganza. William Preston Longley was born on the 6th of October, 1851 in Austin County, Texas. Not to be confused with the city of Austin, the state capital. That's over there in Travis County, with all them hippies. Austin County is actually much closer to the ever-humid metropolis of Houston. Young William, or Bill as he would come to be known, was number 6 out of 10 children to parents Campbell and Sarah Longley, farm and family who would move west to Lee County in 1853 where they'd continue to eke a living out of that soil. And it's there in Lee County, near the town of Evergreen, where young Bill would come of age, enjoying what appears to be a pretty normal childhood for the time and place. He received a decent education, at least up into his early teens, and grew to be a tall, strapping young man. A young man who, like many his age, was greatly affected by the Civil War ravaging the country. Now, Bill himself was too young to serve. By the time the war ended, he was still just 14 years old. And his father didn't serve either. An older man in his mid-40s when the hostilities began, Campbell Longley had fulfilled those duties years earlier, fighting as a young rebel during the Texas Revolution. Bill's brother Alexander, however, would see action in the war between the states, serving in the Confederate Army with Nelson's 10th Texas Infantry, service that would cost the young man his life at just 19 years of age. Now, I wasn't able to find out exactly all the details in Alexander Longley's death, Uh, But it did occur in Chattanooga, Tennessee on the 31st of July, 1864. He is listed on a prisoner of war record that shows injuries to both his shoulder and thighs. And it does appear that the 10th Infantry were involved in the Battle of Atlanta about a week prior. So I reckon it's possible that he may have been injured and then taken prisoner during that fight where he later succumbed to his wounds there in Tennessee. Either way, like far too many others on both sides of that bloody conflict... Alexander went away to war and never came back home. One would have to assume that this accounted for at least part of Bill Longley's hatred of Yankees, Yankee sympathizers, and freed black men as he grew older. Or pretty much anybody who represented the victorious Union Army or their cause. According to at least one source I found, Bill, quote, picked many a fight with anyone he suspected of being a Yankee sympathizer or carpetbagger, and that he was known to whip any black man who crossed his path, end quote. As you'll soon hear, Bill Longley was not a fan of the black people. By the time he was in his late teens, Texas was under full swing reconstruction, something that didn't sit too well with him or anybody else who was still wishing that the Confederacy had won. The great state of Texas was basically under military occupation, and their recent enemies, the Union officials, were now firmly in control. And I know this is a touchy subject, but a lot of people in Texas during this time did not much like the idea of all those slaves being set free. Shocking, I know. 
Men and women who were just slaves a few years prior were now just walking around, traveling where they pleased, and living life to the best of their abilities. These actions in and of themselves were considered cocky or arrogant, or sassy, as Bill Longley would put it in his own words when he said he was, quote, taught to believe it was right to kill sassy Negroes, end quote. Sassy. Now there's a word. Means audacious, bold, lively, and maybe a little mouthy. We all know people who fit this definition, and they're usually pretty independent types. Types that don't mind air in their grievances. It was a character trait that Bill Longley was having no part of. At least not from no damn former slaves. He felt like it was not only his duty, but his right put such people in their place. And it wasn't too long before Bill took to running with other teenagers who felt the same way. Delinquent hellraisers who would harass and even rob any freedmen who were misfortunate enough to cross their path. It was one such encounter that led to Bill Longley taking his first life there in Evergreen, shortly after his 17th birthday. By the way, there are several towns in Texas named Evergreen. The one that Longley called home is now known as the community of Lincoln, just north of Giddings. Alright, so back to Longley and his band of young hellions. They spotted three former slaves traveling through Evergreen in a very sassy manner and decided to rob them, forced the black men into a creek bed at gunpoint. And believe it or not, I really do think these youngsters were only planning on robbing these guys. And putting them in their proper place, of course. Whatever the intention, however, it all went to hell when one of the freedmen, a guy named Green Evans, tried to make a run for it. He wouldn't get too far before Bill Longley shot him deader than hell. As for the other two former slaves, they were simply absconded of their valuables and sent along their way. Now there in Evergreen where Bill lived, the locals didn't seem to mind this killing all that much. Or if they did, they didn't do nothing about it. Matter of fact, when Green Evans' former owner showed up in town to investigate the man's death, everybody just kept their mouths shut. Bill and his friends might have been little shits, but I guess they were their little shits. Still though, the 17-year-old Bill Longley wouldn't stick around for long. He was kind of paranoid about the Union soldiers finding out somehow and arresting him. And so, for the next year and some change, Bill Longley pretty much just roamed south-central Texas. Him and his brother-in-law, John Wilson, and yes, the pair continued to raise hell. Now, it's kind of hard to classify Bill Longley at this point in his life, or at any point, really. He wasn't an outlaw, at least not in the classic sense of the word. He would never do any Jesse James-type stuff like robbing trains or holding up banks. And what robberies he would commit seemed to be minor, and as more of a punishment of sassy black people than as a way of making a living. From all accounts, Bill enjoyed drinking. And like many notorious gunmen, he got mean when he drank. Still, though, he would hold down jobs. Throughout his entire career, if you want to call it that, as a wanted man, he would have various jobs ranging from a farm field hand to a cowboy. And he was known to be a hard worker. And it was around this time that Bill began keeping company with other dangerous men. Guys like the famous Phil Coe. Now, Phil Coe is someone I'm definitely going to be doing an episode on sometime in the future. At 12 years, Longley Sr., the Texas-born co was a veteran of the Civil War and would eventually drift on up to Abilene, Kansas, where he'd go down in history as Wild Bill Hickok's last confirmed kill. Definitely no stranger to violence, Phil Co. and I'm pretty sure Bill Longley was mightily impressed with the man and likely yearned to be like him. Now, that's just an assumption on my part, but as you'll soon see, Longley made a habit of comparing himself with others, along with aspiring to best their reputations as deadly men. As if to prove his bona fides as a legitimate killer, Longley and his brother-in-law murdered two more freed slaves. One in Bastrop County, and the other, a woman, back near his old stomping grounds there in Evergreen. 
Keep in mind that neither of these killings were in self-defense or a gunfight type situation. That fellow over there in Bastrop County just committed the cardinal offense of owning a horse that Bill wanted, along with being black. As far as the woman, I don't know what she did to earn Longley scorn. An overabundance of sass, I imagine. Before too long, Union authorities got wind of these senseless murders and offered up a thousand dollar bounty on Bill's head. That doesn't sound like a whole lot of money, but keep in mind this was 1870. Taking inflation into account, it was more like $20,000 in today's currency. Likely not wanting to stick around and see what sort of bad men might want to collect such a reward, Longley made a somewhat rational decision and got the hell out of Texas, possibly by joining up with a cattle drive headed north. And I say possibly because much of the information we have on Bill at this juncture of his life comes from him. And as you'll soon see, the man wasn't above stretching the truth or just out and out making stuff up. And that's not just me saying that. Literally everyone who's done any research on Bill Longley agree that his adventures are definitely a mix of both fact and fiction. Emphasis on the fiction. We do know, however, that by May of 1870, the 19-year-old Longley had made his way all the way up to Cheyenne, Wyoming, where he joined up with a group of prospectors bound for the Black Hills of South Dakota. And this wasn't no tiny group of miners either. They were headed into the hills 130 men deep, led by a Judge William Kirkendall, a dangerous trip that saw the men plagued by Native American attacks almost from the get-go. And it would be a failed venture. Instead of striking it rich, the expedition would be intercepted by the army and quickly sent back home. Now, this was back when the Black Hills were still being protected per the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, before the boomtown of Deadwood was even thought of. Far from home, with no prospects, and likely broke as hell, I guess Bill figured if you can't beat him, you join him. He signed that dotted line and swore in for a five-year hitch with Company B of the 2nd Cavalry, stationed out of Camp Stomball, Wyoming. Now, with anybody else, this could have been a life-changing moment. A wild young man with no direction joins the military and finds purpose and discipline. Unfortunately, old badass Bill Longley didn't see things that way and almost immediately regretted this decision. The wild Texas boy would only make it about two weeks before trying to desert. Trying being the operative word. He was caught... He was court-martialed, and he was sentenced to two years of hard labor, wearing a ball and chain and making little rocks out of biggins. By the way, this camp Stomball wasn't too far from present-day South Pass City in the Wind River Range. Wild, beautiful country, bitterly cold in the winter. Frigid temperatures that might have helped Bill serve a much shorter sentence than he should have. After just four months and during a brutal winter storm, Longley's post commander had pity and gave the young man a second chance and sent him on back to his company. Now, the 2nd Cav has a long storied history, and they were involved a good bit during the Indian Wars. Matter of fact, they're still active today. Now known as the 2nd Striker Cavalry, it looks like they were serving a tour in Afghanistan as recently as 2013. According to at least one source, they were the oldest continuously serving mounted regiment in the entire U.S. Army. And while I couldn't find any specific engagements between Company B and the natives, at least not during Bill's Hitch, I'm sure he did spend a good amount of time outside the wire on patrol. I'm also sure he was probably tasked with plenty of mundane chores. The type that come with garrison life. Mind-numbingly boring jobs that made him wonder if he was still a prisoner or not. That said, his accuracy with a rifle was noticed. I mean, good or bad, he was a Texan, and he would be sent out on regular hunting parties. Now, Despite this newfound freedom, or possibly due to opportunities afforded him with this freedom, Bill would desert again less than two years later in May of 1872. And this time I reckon he planned it out better because he actually got away with it. Hell, the man did such a good job at covering his tracks that we still don't know exactly what he was up to 
for the rest of that year. And to be honest, there's more than a little mystery surrounding his time in the military. According to Bill, he killed a man, a fellow soldier, with whom he had been defrauding the army with. How true this is, I don't know. As I've already touched on, much of what Longley himself would later claim about his life would turn out to be not very truthful. Maybe the best insight we have into the man is what a fellow soldier would later say about him, claiming Bill was, quote, an idle boaster, a notorious liar, a man of low instinct and habits, but tolerated on account of his good nature, gift of gab, and excellent marksmanship. End quote. By February of 1873, Bill was back in Texas where he was accused of killing yet another freed black man. This time again in Bastrop County, just east of Austin. Or was it Brown County? I don't know. I've read both. Hell, knowing this guy, maybe it was both. What would occur over the course of the next three and a half years can only be described as one hell of a murder spree. At least if all the stories are true. By Longley's own account, he'd kill a total of 32 men during his lifetime. Big disclaimer, we don't know how accurate this number is. Captain Obvious over here, right? The numbers are almost always inflated when it comes to these Old West guys. And we'll talk more about the more accurate number later on. For now, let's just run through the events following his return to Texas and the killing of that freed man in February of 73. That summer, Bill would be caught riding with Frank Eastwood and his gang of Texas Hill Country Bandits. But whether or not he was actually a member of the outfit is up for debate. The whole bunch of them were stuck in jail in beautiful Kerrville, Texas, when on the morning of July 29, 1873, a vigilante mob, air quotes, overpowered the jailers and strung all the men up. All of them, except for Bill Longley. And I still can't figure out how the hell he got so lucky as to not join his companions dancing at the end of that rope. I'm guessing it was probably that reward money, though. Sheriff J.J. Finney from Mason County, just north of Kerrville, hauled Longley's ass to Austin to collect on the bounty. However, the money wasn't too quick in coming, so he simply let the young killer go. Possibly persuaded to do so by bribes paid by Longley's wealthy uncle from California, Preston Longley, who I'm assuming Bill was named after. Uh-huh. Troubled kid getting into fights at a young age. Rich uncle from California. I'm getting some major Fresh Prince of Bel-Air vibes from Bill Longley right now. Alright, so, things seemed to quiet down a little bit until March of 1875, when Bill murdered a friend of his from childhood, Wilson Anderson. Now, this incident involved another of Bill's uncles, Caleb Longley, who somehow got into his head that his son's death was caused by Mr. Anderson. Evidence suggests that Anderson and the young Longley cousin got to drinking together, and the boy ended up riding his horse into a damn tree, thus causing his death. Didn't matter, though. He was dead, and Caleb wanted blood. And who better to extract that blood than your homicidal young nephew, Bill Longley? Turns out it was a job he was well suited for. Bill found Wilson Anderson plowing a field and simply rode up on him and emptied both barrels of a shotgun. Not one to stick around and answer any questions to the law enforcement, Bill decided to hit the road. After a brief trip up to Indian Territory and a horrible lice infection, Longley would return back to familiar stomping grounds in Texas. Still on the run and living under various aliases and working various jobs. And although he was a wanted man, he did have a lot of places he could go to where he didn't necessarily have to hide his true identity. He'd visit his parents on occasion or other family members. He had a sister in Salt Lake City he may or may not have traveled to see. And he even had some friends in law enforcement. As far as his immediate family is concerned, it wasn't all sunshine and kitty cats though. Bill's father actually forbade him to speak with his younger siblings and suggested the young man head to Old Mexico. I guess Mr. Longley didn't like the heat or the shame being brought onto the good family name. Bill would not go to Mexico, however. Instead, he decided to get drunk with some friends and go fox hunting, 
Because why not? At some point during the hunt, Longley and one of the other hunters, a guy named George Thomas, started having words. Then things got physical. When the fight didn't seem to be going Bill's way, he decided to pull a gun out and kill the man. And once again, he was on the run. It was this murder, by the way, that really ramped up law enforcement efforts to apprehend Longley. Just 24 years old at this point, by the way. Hell of a life so far. In January of 76, Longley would get into an actual, legit gunfight with fellow outlaw Lou Schroyer. And you know what they say about honor amongst thieves, right? Now, Lou was a former Union soldier who sniffed out Bill's true identity and conspired to kill the wanted man so he could collect that money. Bill got wind of these plans and decided to put Schroyer under before he got the chance. Now, remember earlier when I said Longley had friends in law enforcement, despite having a bounty on his head? Well, welcome to Texas in the 1870s. That thin blue line was mighty blurry back in those days. So blurry that when Bill decided to go kill Lou Schroyer, not only did he bring Uvalde Deputy William Hayes along with him, but he himself managed to get deputized as well. Yes, Bill Longley, wanted for murder, somehow convinced the mayor or someone over there in Uvalde to pin a damn badge on him. Guess he wanted to kill Schroyer under the cover of law. Alright, so what happened was Bill told Lou that he killed a cow and needed his help to butcher it. As the trio were riding out to where the alleged bovine lay, Lou got nervous, smelled a trap. Sure enough, he spurred his horse just as soon as Bill and Deputy Hayes pulled their guns. They shot Schroyer's horse out from under him and Lou returned the favor, killing Longley's horse and putting a bullet in Hayes' thigh, causing his horse to bolt with him on it. That left just Lou and Bill, both of them on foot and trading bullets, as Lou dove behind some tall grass. Eventually, he would call out to Longley saying that he wanted to talk. Turns out it was just a ruse, though. When Bill approached the man carefully, Lou raised his pistol and Longley shot him dead, thus ending the only legitimate gunfight that Bill Longley probably ever got himself into. So just one more thing on Bill wearing that badge during this killing. As you all know, mob justice ran rampant throughout the West during this time, especially there in Reconstruction, Texas. And I hate mob justice. I hate mobs, period. I hate mob mentality. But the situation at the time was so insane that a wanted killer like Longley could get deputized. Imagine you're just a normal dude trying to live a normal life and raising your family, and Bill Longley or somebody like him is the law in your county. Sometimes for normal people back in those days, the mob was all they had. They're only shot at seeing justice served or order maintained. Which begs the question, does the end justify the means? In almost every case, I would say no, but it is certainly understandable. One more thing, completely unrelated. I'm assuming if you're listening to Wild West Extravaganza, then you're a fellow fan of history. And if you're into more obscure, Old West figures like Bad Bill Longley, you might just like a podcast I recently discovered, aptly titled Obscure History. Or as the host, also named Josh, puts it, history you should know, but don't. And this guy does everything from like ancient history all the way up to more modern type stuff. I'll give you a for instance. I recently listened to his episode titled Avoid the Noid. And if you're around my age or older, you probably remember the old Domino's pizza commercials featuring the Noid. Remember that guy? Ever wonder what happened to the Noid? Well, what if I told you it's a very dark and very disturbing story? And there's a damn good reason they no longer advertise with that particular mascot. You want to hear the rest of the story? Check out Obscure History. Find out what happened. Another very interesting episode I just listened to was Spies in the American Revolution, Agent 355. Bro, I didn't even know they had spies back in those days. So do yourself a favor. If you're into Obscure History, check this podcast out. 
Josh is definitely a pro, and just like you and me, the dude has real passion for history and storytelling. You can find Obscure History wherever you listen to podcasts, but just in case, I will leave a link to his website in this episode's show notes for your lazy ass. And of course, don't forget my friend Michael over there at Texas History Lessons Podcast. He's doing a series right now on the Texas cattle drives that took place right after the Civil War. Cattle drives that our very own Bill Longley may have participated in. All good stuff, so please check both these guys out. All right, moving forward. Fleeing once again, Longley found himself in Delta County, Texas. Tiny little fart of a county east of Dallas and just north of Sulphur Springs. He moved in with a farmer by the name of Thomas Jack. It was pretty soon bit by the itty-bitty teeny-weedy thing they called the love bug. Falling hard for Mr. Jack's 16-year-old daughter, Rachel Lavinia, or Miss Louvenia, as Bill took to calling her. Not sure what she called him, though, as he was going by the name William Black at this point, and I don't know if he ever confessed his true identity to his lady love or not. Can't be sparking no Delta County gal without a job, though. So Bill took up sharecropping with a minister, a Reverend Roland Lay, whose nephew, Mark Foster, also had the hots for Miss Louvenia. Oh boy, here we go. You know what happens next, right? Mark starts seeing Louvenia. Eventually, he asks for her hand in marriage. She accepts and gently breaks the news to Bill, and although he's heartbroken, he is supportive of her decision, saying, quote, Lavinia, I don't like it one bit, but you know your heart better than anybody else, and although I love you, I want you to be happy. May God bless you and your new husband-to-be, end quote. And of course, that's not what happened. You fucking crazy? Somebody's obviously got to die in this situation. Now, Longley would later claim that he kept finding anonymous notes meant for him, warning him away from Louvenia. Notes he was sure were being left by that son of a bitch, Mark Foster. Eventually, he'd confront Foster and beat the young man, both with pistol and a horse quirt, and probably with the help of Lavinia's father, Thomas Jack, as both he and Thomas were soon jailed for the assault. Bill only spent six days in jail, though. He ended up burning a hole through the wall and escaping, finding the good Reverend Lay, whom he blamed for the whole damn ordeal, and gunning the man down with a shotgun. Again, with the shotgun. By the way, I did find a Rachel Lavinia Jack on the 1880 census in nearby Lamar County, and it appears that the young lady was still single, so I guess she and Mark Foster never did tie that knot. As for Bill, it was time to hit the road once again, possibly up to Lee County where he possibly busted a couple of bandit friends of his out of the custody of a Grayson County deputy sheriff. The next time we know for sure when old Bill pops up on the scene, he's hiding out in Louisiana under another assumed name, Bill Jackson over in DeSoto Parish, and once again working for a farmer. Now, I got blood kin that were living in DeSoto Parish and directly across the border in Panola County, Texas, right around this time. And trust me when I say them people up there are still half outlaw, even nowadays. Bill Longley certainly wasn't the first wanted man to find refuge there on the Texas-Louisiana border. Nevertheless, it seems that Longley could play that Farmer John shit when he needed to, and he did once again develop a reputation as a hard worker. He even got in good with a local constable, June Courtney, to the point that he'd even help the lawman make arrests on occasion. Kind of makes you wonder if given enough time and opportunity, if Longley could have eventually turned his life around and became a respected deputy himself. Lord knows he wouldn't be the first. I'm reminded of Frank Canton, another guy I'll be doing an episode on soon. Canton, born Josiah Horner, was a Texas cowboy gone bad. Took to robbing banks and stealing cattle, even killed a Buffalo soldier back in 1874. After getting arrested by the Texas Rangers, Horner escaped and fled north, changed his name to Frank Canton, and spent the next 20 years as a respected lawman. 
And when he finally did confess his true identity, he was granted a pardon from the governor of Texas. This wouldn't be the case for Bill Longley, though. It wasn't too long before Constable June got a hold of a wanted poster that described his new friend Bill to a T. Upon further inquiry, the Louisiana lawman received word from Lee County, Texas, where the wanted poster was out of, that Longley was, quote, the worst man in Texas. You will have to take advantage of him. He will fight, and he is a good shot, end quote. So, enlisting the help of some lawmen in neighboring Nacogdoches County, Texas, Constable June Courtney sent word to Longley to meet him at the courthouse to assist in an arrest. Bill fell for the trap, and when he showed up, it was he that was arrested without incident and immediately put into shackles. This was June 6, 1877, and the jig was up. Days later, without the benefit of extradition proceedings, Bill Longley was back in Texas in the Lee County Jailhouse, waiting to be tried for the 1875 murder of his childhood friend, Wilson Anderson. All right, so if you're familiar with the story of Bill Longley, or maybe you just casually Googled the man prior to listening to this episode, you may be thinking to yourself that I've left out some of his other various adventures. Like the story of him killing his first man at the age of 16 when some fool dared to insult his father, Bill pulled out his revolver and emptied it at the son of a bitch. Or how Longley once killed his own trail boss on a cattle drive. Or his gunfight in Leavenworth, Kansas, with a drunken soldier who made the fatal mistake of insulting the great state of Texas. Or maybe you've heard of Longley living with the Shoshone after he deserted from the army, going on raids with them against their enemies, even raiding his old post Camp Stomball and stealing horses. And then about how Bill headed on down to New Mexico fighting banditos and romancing spicy senoritas. And of course, there's a story of Bill riding with the infamous Cullen Baker gang. The only problem is most of these stories are either unverifiable or just verifiably untrue. Unfortunately, Bill Longley wasn't the most honest guy, and yes, he did have a reason for his tall tales, which I will get to very shortly. But the story of him riding with Cullen Baker is a great example of when we know for sure Bill was telling a fib. If you're not familiar with Cullen Baker, he was a legitimate nasty dude. He and his gang targeted both Union soldiers and civilians in Texas, Arkansas, and Louisiana from the end of the Civil War until Baker's death. Now, Longley claims to have fallen in with the gang in the spring of 1869. Story goes that the still-teenaged Bill was merely traveling with one of Baker's men when they got captured by an angry posse who decided to string him up. As soon as Longley and his companion were dancing at the end of that rope, the purveyors of justice just simply rode off. This allowed another one of Baker's gang to shoot the rope right above Bill's head, thus toppling him to the ground before he strangled to death. He then claimed to have gone on to become one of Cullen Baker's top lieutenants. Problem is, Cullen Baker was already dead and in the ground when this story supposedly happened. By several months. And the whole shooting the rope thing is very hard to believe. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure they tried that back in the day on Mythbusters and they just couldn't get it to work. Anyway, a lot of these stories came to light after Longley got arrested and he took to writing letters, trying to make himself out to be a more dangerous man than he actually was. Or I guess I should say trying to make himself out to be more dangerous than another very famous Texas outlaw, John Wesley Harden. Turns out Longley was dead set on proving that it was he and not Harden who was the most dangerous man in Texas. So he took to filling in the gaps with made-up stories about getting into gunfights and surviving hangings and, and all that kind of stuff. And how do I know that he made this all up? Well, he would eventually admit to lying about much of it. Longley's trial began in early September 1877 in Giddings, Texas, up there in Lee County. And due to Bill spending the preceding months inflating his reputation as a damn killer, it was a pretty short trial. 
One day was spent picking the jury. Prosecution took one day to present their case. And the jury just took one hour to come back with a guilty verdict. Guess them 12 honest men didn't care much for Longley's stories either. And the punishment? Bill was to hang by the neck till he was dead, dead, dead. Let this be a lesson to you. You get arrested, keep your damn mouth shut. Bill literally talked himself into a hangman's noose. Now everything here was being done by the books, believe it or not. Longley wasn't just taken from the courthouse right after the verdict and strung up from the nearest tree. He was soon transferred down to the Galveston County Jail, a much harder jail to escape from, and began working on his appeal. It was also a time of reflection for Bill Longley, and he started regretting making up all them stories to sound like the biggest, baddest outlaw around. Even to the point of finally admitting that they were just that, stories, and that in reality he had only killed eight men. Didn't matter much though, as his appeal was soon denied. And as if to add insult to injury, a few months later John Wesley Harden, his rival, who was also on trial for murder at the same time, was sentenced to only 25 years in prison, something Bill considered very unjust saying, quote, don't you think it's a one-sided thing to kill me for my sins, but only give Harden 25 years? I reckon life ain't fair. And just like the great Clint Eastwood once said, deserves got nothing to do with it. By the way, I got to thinking what would have happened had Longley and Harden ever actually met up in real life when they were both in their prime. Would they have decided to see which one was the deadliest, or would their mutual bloodlust lend itself to friendship? Well, as it turns out, the two did meet at least once and very early in their careers. Matter of fact, Wes Harden was only 17 at the time, and playing a rousing game of 7-Up in Bonham, Texas, when what he later described as a, quote, dark-looking man came up and started making threats. That man was Longley, and he had initially suspected Harden of being a spy of some sort. The two ended up going to the horse races and even playing poker together before leaving on good terms, or at least good enough terms to not resort to gunplay. Later, though, once both men were behind bars, they'd start to criticize one another via the newspapers. During Harden's trial, he claimed to have never had anything to do with Bill Longley, and that he only rode with men of honor, suggesting, of course, that honor was something that Bill didn't have much of. In turn, Longley spoke derisively of how Harden needed so many men with him to kill Quero City Marshal Rube Barrow, and how John Wesley and Jim Taylor murdered Charlie Webb, whom Longley described as, quote, one of the best and bravest men in the state of Texas. Now, I for one think that if the two men had decided to fight, that Harden would have likely came out on top, as he was the more accomplished killer. However, it's not like either men were out there fighting a lot of pitched battles. They drank, and they got mean, and they killed mostly when they had the drop. So I reckon it had just come down to whichever one of them happened to have the advantage, as well as their individual levels of intoxication. What do you think? Who'd win the bout of the Texas bad men, John Wesley Harden or Bad Bill Longley? Email me at wildwestextra at gmail and let daddy know what you think. Now Longley would make at least one attempt to escape, but it was no use. His fate was sealed and he knew it. This was around the time that he began recounting some of those stories and reflecting on his life. My first step was disobedience, he wrote, saying further, quote, Next whiskey drinking, next carrying pistols, next gambling, and then murder. And I suppose the next step will be the gallows. End quote. It's also important to note that Bill would receive no visitors the entire time he was locked up. No family came to his trial or went to see him down there in Galveston. They hadn't completely abandoned their wild boy, though. Remember that rich uncle from California? Well, he started writing letters to then-President Rutherford B. Hayes, seeking a pardon. Others in Texas, friends of the family, I assume, began a petition to get Bill's sentence commuted to just life in prison. But to quote Michael Scott from The Office, 
It was all just an exercise in fertility. By August of 1878, Bill was transferred back up there to Giddings under heavy chains. And with just two months left to live, he found God and converted to Catholicism. He even seemed to accept his fate at this point, saying that he was, quote, ready to abide by the decision of the jury. And telling his brother on the night before the execution, quote, I don't dread this at all. Tomorrow this time, I will be in a much better place. When the day finally came, it was a Friday, October 11th, 1878. Although it was overcast, that didn't stop thousands from flocking to Giddings to watch the macabre event. Bill, however, wasn't too concerned with the weather. He spent that morning meeting with two priests and then had the jail guards join him in singing Amazing Grace. That's a song right there that I've always liked. Always hits me in the feels. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. A wretch. That means a deplorably unfortunate person of despicable character. I reckon I felt like a wretch most of my life. And I'm pretty sure there at the end, Bill Longley was feeling kind of the same way. Looking for that same grace that I've always sought after. Amazing grace. And I can't help but wonder how Bill felt during that last day. Wonder if he had to sit there in his cell and listen to the sawing and hammering as the gallows he'd soon hang from were being built. I wonder what they fed him for his last meal and if he was able to keep it down. When the time came, Bill was marched to the scaffold in a black suit, adorned with a blue rosette arrangement on the lapel and a small Catholic medal hanging around his neck. And he was finally able to visit with a family member, a 10-year-old niece who came to say goodbye. Bill was given a drink of water and a cigar. Then at 2.15 p.m., he was ordered to head up to the scaffold. Noticing that the stairs were a little rickety, he warned the guards to watch their steps, joking that if a man wasn't careful, he was likely to break his neck on such a contraption. The death warrant was read, Bill discarded what was left of his stogie, and then addressed the crowded throng of onlookers, saying in part, quote, I deserve this fate. It is a debt I owe for my wild, reckless life. One more prayer with the priest, and then the condemned man took his position over the trap door. A hood then placed over his head and a noose around his neck. At the preordained time, the executioner, using the hatchet, cut the rope, sending Longley straight to the ground. Uh-oh. Seems there was a miscalculation, and the rope was too long. Instead of a quick fall, a broken neck, and a swift death, Bill Longley was sent tumbling to the ground, still very much alive and in pain. At least one account I found said that the man landed on his knees. Obviously, this is no good. And it kind of got me to looking up information on hangings and various hanging techniques. Did y'all know we've been hanging our fellow brothers and sisters for one hell of a long time? At least as far back as the medieval days. The first mention of hanging in all of literature goes back to Homer's Odyssey. And the Vikings were possibly using hangings during religious ceremonies way back in the Iron Age. The last person to be officially executed in the United States of America via hanging, other than Jeffrey Epstein, was in Delaware in 1996. Other countries, however, still use hangings as their preferred method of execution. In places like Saudi Arabia, North Korea, Somalia, and Iran, you can still get your neck stretched. Remember Saddam Hussein? They hung his ass back in 2006 over there in Iraq. Seems like yesterday. As far as the art of hanging goes, there's basically three different methods. You got the short drop, which was probably the most common throughout history. As the name suggests, there's a short drop and you just strangle to death. Usually it takes 10 to 20 minutes. Effective, but it's messy. Then there's the standard drop, where the fall is between 4 to 6 feet. 
Now, this came into widespread use after 1866 and was considered more humane because it broke the condemned person's neck, causing them to immediately lose consciousness and a quick brain death, you know, instead of just dancing at the end of a rope slowly strangling. And finally, there's the long drop, or the measured drop, sort of a more scientific approach to the standard drop. Now, this is interesting because it calculated a person's height and weight when determining how far they'd fall. Because guess what? You know how if a hanging is not done properly, then the prisoner will just choke to death? Well, if there's an overcompensation or a miscalculation, that could result in decapitation. That's what happened to the outlaw Blackjack Ketchum when he got hung back in 1901. His damn head just popped right off. The measured drop was sort of a sweet spot between strangulation and decapitation. And from what I can tell, it appears that this is the type of hanging that Bill Longley experienced. Only problem was the rope was too long, and so while his head didn't pop off, his neck didn't break either. Dude literally just stood there, noose around his neck, until the sheriff and a deputy physically hauled his body back up by the rope. And then Bill Longley had his final dance, gurgling and moaning, feet kicking for 11 long minutes until he finally was at peace, dead at the young age of 27. His body was placed in a coffin and buried outside of the main cemetery, in an area where the blacks and Hispanics were buried. So I'm assuming this was somewhat of a pauper's burial. Once again, I find this interesting. If his immediate family couldn't afford to bury him, surely his rich uncle could. Turns out there may have been a very good reason why Bill's parents neither attended his funeral nor had him buried close by, which I will get to in just a moment. Either way, I guess it didn't matter none, though. Their boy was gone. Or was he? Over nine years later, in 1887, a newspaper ran an article claiming that Bill Longley's execution was a hoax and that he was alive and well, living the good life of a wealthy cattleman down in South America. Story goes that that rich uncle from California bribed the sheriff and the deputies had a special harness placed on Bill just to make it look like he got hanged. And the newspaper's source was Campbell Longley, Bill's own father. Now, when I first saw this, my initial reaction was, okay, here we go. Bill's daddy must have fallen on hard times and decided to make a little money off his dead son's name. Maybe trying for a book deal or something like that. Turns out that's probably not the case. Turns out Campbell Longley's little lie about his son was most likely made out of compassion and a desire to lessen the pain of a grieving mother. Seems that Bill's mom, Sarah, never accepted the fact that her baby boy turned out to be a maniacal killer. And she couldn't accept the fact that he was executed. So to lessen her grief and stop her mind from fully shattering, the family concocted the story of Bill's escape. A story that was meant to just stay in their little inner circle, but somehow got leaked to the press. Man, I read how the family would even go so far as to write letters to Sarah from Bill. So fucking sad, man. Something about a mother's love. No matter what kind of piece of shit you turn out to be, to her, you're still that little boy that she had to clean and hold and feed. Happy little boy that went wrong. Well, Sarah would pass away in the year 1890, but the stories of Bill Longley escaping death didn't die with her. Hell, I even found one story that claims Longley lived long enough to finally perish as a passenger of the Titanic. No joke. Even nearly a hundred years after his death, new stories were emerging from his alleged escape from the long arm of the law. In 1988, a man named Ted Wax wrote a book called Dead Man on the Bayou, in which he laid out the case that Bill Longley not only faked his death, but changed his name yet again to John Calhoun Brown, a wealthy Louisiana timberman who just so happened to be the author's grandfather. Now all you brushy Bill Roberts believers might want to pay attention to this next part. 
a computer-based comparison of photos of John Calhoun Brown compared to a known picture of Longley at none other than the Smithsonian Institute determined with high probability that the two men were one and the same. Likewise, a handwriting comparison analysis was conducted that backed up the photo comparison study. Case closed, right? That's all the proof we need. Not so quick. This sparked renewed interest in Longley's case, and after much effort, eventually his grave was located and dug up in 1998, revealing a corpse that matched Bill's description, even down to the Catholic medal around the neck and a broken leg likely caused by the fall. These remains were sent to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., and in 2001, it was determined through DNA testing that this was the body of Bill Longley. Now the case is closed. And now I hope you all know how unreliable those photo comparison and handwriting analysis cases are. I tried looking up the book Dead Man on the Bayou, and while it is listed on Amazon, it's not for sale. I couldn't find it for sale anywhere, actually. Then again, I only spent about three or four minutes looking, so... I mean, if you want it, maybe it's out there somewhere. As far as how many men Bill Longley actually killed, I will refer you to an article by Marshall Trimble I found on True West Magazine, titled Bad Bill Longley. Link in this episode's show notes. In the article, Mr. Trimble asked Longley biographer Rick Miller, the author of the book Bloody Bill Longley, The Mythology of a Gunfighter, to clarify how many people Bill had actually killed. According to Rick Miller, the answer is just five. At least that's how many he was able to corroborate and verify. Green Evans, the former slave that I mentioned as you know, being Bill's first kill. His childhood friend, Wilson Anderson, who he was eventually executed for. George Thomas, the hunting buddy. The outlaw, Lou Schroyer. And finally, the Reverend Lay. Mr. Miller goes on to say that the rest of the killings appear to be boast in order to best the record of John Wesley Harden. Boast that he came to regret when his appeal didn't work out the way that he was hoping. So what do you think? My opinion is there's a good chance Longley killed more than just those five I listed. Eight is probably a more accurate number. You know, that's the number he himself would finally admit to at the end. And before anyone emails me saying that Longley was just a victim of his times and that the Yankee soldiers were so mean to him that he had no other choice, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Bill lost a brother to the war, sure, but so did a hell of a lot of other Texans. From all accounts, Longley had a decent childhood. His family wasn't destitute and the soldiers didn't burn the farm down or anything like that. There is zero evidence that suggests Bill Longley was a noble freedom fighter or much of anything else other than a killer motivated by hate. I think it's safe to say based on everything I've read, the most dangerous part about Bill Longley wasn't his skill as a gunfighter, but just his total lack of regard for the sanctity of life. By the way, one thing I forgot to mention was that Bill was said to favor a matching pair of dance 44 caliber revolvers. Established in Columbia, Texas, I've been there, in 1858, the J.H. Dance and Company manufactured grist mills and cotton gins, but soon began making firearms as well during the Civil War, in an attempt to supply the Confederate Army with much-needed weapons. Over the course of the war, they made a few hundred of these so-called dance revolvers, which were pretty much designed as a mix between the Dragoon and the 1851 Navy revolvers. Thought I'd toss that little factoid out there because I know some of y'all are real knowledgeable, these old type of guns. Me personally, I had never heard of dance revolvers previously, but I did look them up and you can buy uh, replicas. It's worth noting, however, that the only times we know for sure what firearm Longley used, it was a shotgun as opposed to a pistol. So I'm not sure how often those dance revolvers were put to use. They probably did see action though during that gunfight with Lou Schroyer. There's a lot to Bill Longley. And I definitely suggest looking into the man a little more if you're interested. 
The book I mentioned earlier, Bloody Bill Longley, The Mythology of a Gunfighter by Rick Miller, and Wild Bill Longley by Dick Brownson would be great places to start. Sorry for the delay in episodes lately, by the way. And sorry if I seem a little bit off on this episode. I've been a busy little beaver. I've been in the process of packing and getting ready to move, and I'm very happy to announce the recent birth of my daughter. She damn sure wasn't due yet, but she did decide to grace us with her presence a little early. So as you can imagine, I've been very stressed and busy. But I am very grateful and extremely blessed and honored to have her in my life. I've already explained to her why Unforgiven is the greatest Western movie ever made, and we will be watching it together very shortly. That said, I thank you all for your patience. In an ideal world, I'd like to put a new episode out every other Monday, but for the time being, at least for maybe another month or so, these episodes may be a little bit more spread out and published on any given day of the week. And if I haven't responded to your emails or voice messages, just know that I have been reading them. I've just been really busy. I will reply soon, though. Also, thank you all for your kind words on my last episode on Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce War. I do have one thing I'd like to address, while at the same time bragging a little bit. Look, dog, you and me both know I'm not the greatest speaker out there. If there's a way to butcher a word, then I'll find it. That said, I did have several people reach out to correct me on my pronunciation of Nez Perce. Now, first off, let me just say I do not mind these corrections. But in this case, it does appear that I was right. And I am proud to say that I did do my research on how to say the word before I ever recorded that episode. So I was really surprised and kind of confused about these corrections. And I got paranoid and went and looked it all up again to make sure I was indeed saying it the right way. So here's the deal, y'all. I can only go by what I know. In this case, I've never met a member of the Nez Perce in my entire life. But it is pretty simple to Google how to pronounce Nez Perce. And the very first thing you'll find is this. The name was given by the French meaning in French, pierced nose. For reference, in French, this is normally pronounced as ne percé or ne percé. In English, however, this is usually said as nez purse, nez purse, nez purse. Okay, yeah, that sounds exactly how I said it. But what do they know, right? So next up, I went to see if I could find some actual members of the tribe and hear how they pronounced it. Here's what I found. And once you start learning more about the Appaloosa, you learn more about the, the Nespers and vice versa. I'm James Spencer, the Nespers Tribe's Young Horseman Project, and we're here. We have a Nespers horse here. It's not exactly known how, how the breeding began, but uh, the Nespers people did selectively breed horses. All right, there you have it. That's three separate Nez Perce pronouncing it Nez Perce, just like I did. Finally, just to be on the safe side, I went straight to the source and called the damn reservation. Yes, I did. I told the young lady that answered the phone that I was doing some research and could she pretty please help me with something. To which she replied, sir, I'm just an operator. I said, I understand, but are you Nez Perce? She said, yes. I said, perfect. All I need to know is if I'm pronouncing Nez Perce correctly. She replied again, saying that yes, I was. I then asked if she had ever heard any of her people pronounce it another way. And she said no, she had not. I said thank you, told her to have a good day, and that was the end of our conversation. So there you have it. Nanny nanny boo boo, stick your head in doo doo. Daddy is pronouncing Nez Perce right. (laughs) Just kidding about the sticking your head in doo doo. Like I said, I always appreciate these corrections. I was just concerned because there was a lot of people telling me I was wrong. I just wanted to make sure I was right. So yay me. 
but don't let this stop you from correcting me on all my many other blunders. Also, keep all the topic suggestions coming in too. Okay, one last thing and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, Going forward, I will be sprinkling in some re-recordings in between new episodes. Don't worry, these are not going to be just verbatim redos. There's a lot of topics I've covered in the past that I have new information on that I'd like to add to. Kind of like I did my Hugh Glass episode. And I'm doing this for a few reasons. First and foremost, I am extremely embarrassed of some of my very early episodes, both due to quality and content. Quality-wise, I didn't even have a microphone yet on some of them. I was recording straight into my phone, and the volume levels are atrocious. Content-wise, eh, I just don't think they're a, they're a good representation of how I'm currently researching the topics and presenting them. They're low effort, and it kind of shows. Plus, like I said, there's always new information. The first redo I'm planning is one I've been very excited to revisit, Brushy Bill Roberts. Look for that one coming up very quickly wherever your trifling asses listen to podcasts. Also, once I get done moving, I'm going to be giving some books away, books that I've used while doing research for this podcast. So please stay tuned for details on how to get your hands on some free reading material. As always, thank you all so much for listening. Please head on over to wildwestextra.com and hit that contact button. Share this podcast with somebody, and please subscribe or follow on whatever platform you are currently listening. Lots of more episodes where this one came from. All right, man, that's all I got for today. Try not to murder any freed slaves this week, and don't go break your mama's heart like Bill Longley did. Stay safe, and I will catch you next episode. Adios. <laughs>